Section 14 of The Ocean, A General Account of the Science of the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean, A General Account of the Science of the Sea, by John Murray. Section 14. Brown algae, Phaeophaceae, include diatoms, peridineans, Coccolithophoridae and Xanthalae. 1. Diatoms. These organisms are found throughout the world in all fresh and salt water and in damp places. They occur not only floating in the ocean but attached to other algae and to animals in almost all regions. They are distinguished from other algae in possessing thin, silicated cell walls, often beautifully sculptured, which consist of two similar valves, or frustules fitting into one another like the top and bottom of a pillbox. New cells are produced by division. Some species are capable of motion, and glide over the sand or mud or through the water. In other species, the separate frustules glide over each other with a back-and-forward motion. The pelagic species, see plate 7, to which reference is here specially limited, have generally thinner walls than fixed shore or neuritic species, and have frequently higher developed suspension organs. They have been divided into four groups. A. The bladder type, of which Cosinodiscus rex, over a millimetre in diameter, is the largest. B. The ribbon type, with flattened cells, several cells being united together into ribbon-like colonies, as in Fragilaria oceanica. C. The hair type, with cells very much prolonged in one direction, or united into elongated colonies. The elongated form tends to keep them in a horizontal position in the water, and so prevent them from sinking. Rhizosolenia offers an example of this type. D. The branching type, with the surface of the cell enlarged by various kinds of hair-shaped outgrowths. Chaotoceros, usually associated in chains, is a well-known example of this type. Many of these require to vary their form in order to adapt their floating power to the varying conditions of viscosity in ocean water. Their tendency to sink increases as the viscosity decreases with a rise of temperature, and they then develop special suspension organs to keep them near the surface. In temperate regions, some species may have distinct summer and winter forms so unlike that they have been regarded as different species. In the tropics there are species corresponding to the summer forms, and in polar waters species corresponding to the winter forms. The summer forms have usually thinner cell walls and a more slender structure. In coastal waters, where the physical conditions vary far more than in the open sea, most diatoms have a special adaptation, unknown in true oceanic species, called resting spores, to enable them to pass through unfavourable seasons of the year. The cell contents shrink into a dense mass in the middle of the cell, and then develop a new and thick wall within the old cell wall, which is discarded as soon as the resting spore is fully enveloped. These spores, having a greater specific weight, sink either into deep water or to the bottom in coastal areas, where they lie for months until conditions are again favourable for a new start. The germination of these resting spores has not yet been described. In the open ocean, diatoms occur in greatest abundance where there is an admixture of muddy water from the land and where the salinity is relatively low, 
for instance, off the embouchures of rivers in the Indo-Pacific region, where the largest rainfall in the world occurs, and towards the Arctic and Antarctic ice. Their abundance appears to be related to the presence of colloidal silica, or the hydrated silica of alumina in these areas, rather than to temperature, for they are found abundantly in the tropics as well as towards the poles. In the northern and tropical Pacific, where the salinity of the surface water is relatively low, all silica-secreting organisms are more abundant than in the salter waters of the Atlantic. It is well known that the addition of some salt to muddy water at once clears it by precipitating the clay matter. There is evidently a lack of silica in solution or suspension in the ocean waters with high salinity, so that this distribution of silica-secreting organisms is correlated with the law of the minimum in agriculture. In the Great Southern Ocean, and in some other areas of limited extent, the dead frustules of diatoms accumulate on the bottom in such numbers that the deposit is called diatom ooze. 2. Peritoneans These are mobile unicellular algae, or organisms which function as algae, having a cell wall of organic substance like cellulose, which dissolves after the death of the organism. Consequently, the remains of these organisms are never detected in marine deposits. They occur in enormous quantities and in many varieties, while most of them are brilliantly phosphorescent. Peritoneum depressum is a typical species. A distinct difference is seen between the anterior and the posterior ends, and also between the dorsal and the ventral surfaces. There are characteristic furrows on both front and back, and a third furrow, known as the ring furrow, encircles the cell. One cilium projects through a pore in the posterior furrow, and can be withdrawn spirally into a sheath. Another cilium lies in the ring furrow. Gran states that, in peritoneum, reproduction does not take place by cell division, but the cell contents are changed into one, two, or four naked spores that are shed from the original cell, and gradually develop new cell walls of their own. In serratium, the reproduction is by division, as in the diatoms. The cells very often hang together in chains, and it can be seen that the horns of the cell vary considerably in form from one generation to another. Serratium tripos may give rise to an intermediate generation of quite a different type, much smaller, with short, straight horns. In the same species, gemmation may take place instead of normal cell division. The full meaning of these variations has not yet been made out. Pyrocystis, discovered during the Challenger expedition, belongs to the Peridinae, and is very abundant in all tropical and subtropical waters where the temperature exceeds 68 degrees Fahrenheit, and where the salinity is not lowered by the presence of coast waters. Pyrocystis noctilusa is spherical in form, and 0.6 to 0.8 millimetres in diameter, with brown pigment granules. It is about the same size as the animal flagellate Noctilusa, which never has brown granules, and flourishes in coast waters, while Pyrocystis occupies the open water far from land, chiefly in intertropical regions. Both Pyrocystis and Noctilusa are brilliantly phosphorescent. 3. Coccolithophoridae are brown globular flagellates, which secrete calcareous button-like shields, sometimes with a central spine, and are generally limited to the warmer areas of the ocean. These calcareous shields 
are called coccoliths or rhabdoliths and were known from deep sea deposits long before the living organisms, coccospheres and rhabdospheres, were discovered by the challenger in the surface waters. They have been met with in geological deposits as ancient as the Cambrian period, showing that they have retained their shape practically unaltered through long ages. These rhabdospheres and coccospheres may pass through the finest tonets, and for a long time some naturalists did not believe in their existence. They were first detected during the Challenger expedition, entangled in the protoplasmic threads of pelagic foraminifera and radiolaria, and in the stomachs of salpae and pteropods, and are now collected plentifully by means of the centrifuge from water samples obtained at different depths by the water bottle. In the Arctic and Antarctic seas, the coccospheres are replaced by species without calcareous shields, such as Tetraspora, Phaeocystis pauchetti, which occurs in enormous floating banks. 4. Xanthalae. Besides the Coccolithophoridae, there are other minute brown algae in the surface waters of the tropical regions, which are as yet imperfectly known, though they probably play a great role in the economy of the ocean. Such are the Xanthalae, or yellow cells, of the Radiolarians, a case of symbiosis. This association of plant and animal cells is evidently beneficial to both, for the start developed by the yellow cells with the formation of oxygen may serve as nutriment to the animal, while the carbonic acid yielded by the animal is available to the plant cell. These yellow cells occur also in foraminifera, globigerina and orbitolites, and in corals and other invertebrates, as well as floating independently in the ocean. In the legion of the radiolaria called Phyodaria, which inhabit the deep sea, the place of the yellow cells in the other radiolaria is apparently taken by the Phyodelae, dark-coloured cells, which may possibly be a lower form of algal life than the yellow cells and capable of evolving oxygen under the influence of the phosphorescence of deep-sea animals. Blue-green algae, Cyanophyceae, predominate over all other algae in freshwater, but in the sea, they are represented by only a few species and genera. The well-known blossoming, or water bloom, of lakes at certain times of the year is due to the enormous development of certain species of Oscillateraceae, and something similar occurs in the ocean. The best-known oceanic genus is Trichodesmium, consisting of brownish, yellow, or red cells collected together into little bundles which have in the water the appearance of chopped hay. In calm weather, these clusters rise to the surface by means of air vacuoles, and at times form a yellowish-brown scum of great extent, which is called by sailors whale's spawn. When this scum occurs in great quantity, a disagreeable pungent smell is given off, and sometimes it has an ill effect on the eyes and nose. Other species of Oscillateraceae are known to have noxious properties. These blue-green algae in addition to chlorophyll, contain phycocyanin and other colouring matters, which modify the absorption spectra and thus affect the assimilation of carbon from carbonic acid in the presence of sunlight and the liberation of oxygen. This phycocyanin is probably set free in the process of putrefaction and may be the cause of the disagreeable effects noted above. A very minute blue-green algae, Richelia intracellularis, occurs within the cells of Rhizocelenia, 
and apparently reproduces itself inside the diatom cell. It is not yet known how it penetrates into the diatom, but it has been suggested that it probably does so during an early stage in the life history of rhizocelenia before it has developed its silicated cell wall. Green algae, chlorophyceae, are poorly represented in the ocean, and in the phytoplankton practically only by the genus Halosphera, a small spherical alga of bright green colour known to Italian fishermen as punti verdi, green spots. Indeed, the green colour so characteristic of most terrestrial plants is found in only a few marine animals. Halosphera occurs nearly everywhere in the surface and subsurface waters, except in the Arctic and Antarctic, but never in great abundance. Unlike most algae, it is reproduced by zoospores. It has been taken in closing nets near the lowest limits of the penetration of sunlight in the open ocean, but in this position was probably dead and falling to the bottom. Bacteria. These plants are often regarded as the lowest forms of life. This does not mean that they were the first living organisms on the earth, where life probably appeared long before bacteria. They have, doubtless, undergone evolution and had not always their present appearance. They are related to the fungi and are the most numerous and most widely distributed of living things, being present everywhere in earth, air and water, and occurring as parasites in plants and animals. Under the microscope, they appear as round dots, rods, or threads. They are colourless and contain no chlorophyll, and have an envelope or capsule of cellulose, or allied substance. They multiply by division, or by spores. Life, as a whole, could not continue without bacteria. They do not originate life, but supply life with the necessary material. Plants without chlorophyll and animals dissipate the energy accumulated by chlorophyllous plants, which derived this energy wholly from the rays of the sun. Bacteria and decomposing organic matter are always associated, so that the presence of bacteria throughout the whole mass of the ocean, even in the greatest depths and in the coldest waters, was inferred long before their presence was detected by actual observations. The vast majority of bacteria cannot live unless they have organic substances both carbonaceous and nitrogenous at their disposal. They include those which produce fermentation, decomposition of non-nitrogenous substances, and those that produce putrefaction, decomposition of nitrogenous substances. The excretions and dead bodies of animals, the fragments of tissues and cells, the waste of domestic and industrial life, all eventually find their way into the soil and into the ocean. Generally, these substances are not in a fit chemical state to be utilised at once by plant as food. It is necessary that they should first go through a transformation in which their chemical composition becomes changed. It is as the agents of this change, or transformation, that bacteria play their greatest role in the world of life. In short, the final destiny of all living substances is, sooner or later, directly or indirectly, to become food for bacteria. Through the activity of an enzyme produced by certain bacteria, a simple excretory product may be converted into carbonate of ammonia. Now, while green plants or algae can derive some nitrogen from ammoniacal compounds, it is a well-established fact that nitrogen may be obtained by plants much more readily from nitrates. There are then still other bacteria, nitrifying bacteria, 
which oxidize ammoniacal nitrogen into the more available form of nitrites and nitrates. One group attacks the ammonium compounds, changing them to nitrites. Another group completes the oxidation into nitrates. Denitrifying bacteria reverse this action and reduce nitrates to nitrites, nitrites to ammonia, and ammonia to free nitrogen. There is thus a never-ending cycle. Through the agency of chlorophyll in sunlight, there is a progressive complexity in the living organic matter which is built up, vegetable proteins being formed. Animals may devour these vegetable products and raise the living substances to a still higher level of complexity, animal proteins being formed. However, on the death of all animals and plants, these complex organic substances are broken down through the agency of bacteria to carbon dioxide and nitrogen, or its simplest compounds, which have relatively little stored potential energy. The nitrifying bacteria appear to require no organic compounds for their nutrition, and the bacteria of root nodules, given the most minute quantity of organic carbon, can derive all their nitrogen from the atmosphere. With these may be classed those forms which are able, with a very small supply of organic matter, to break up specific inorganic bodies and derive energy from the process, sulphur and iron bacteria. The chemical changes are not well understood, but they indicate that these organisms, without chlorophyll and sunlight, can appropriate the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, as well as assimilate and store up free nitrogen. These bacteria thus give some indication of how the first forms of life to appear on the earth obtained their nourishment, and they may possibly form an exception to the general statement that green chlorophyll-bearing plants are alone able, with the aid of sunlight, to assimilate carbon dioxide of the atmosphere and to build up carbohydrates. It follows from what has been stated above that in the ocean bacteria are most abundant near shore and in shallow water, where there is a large supply of dead organic matter and become less and less abundant far out to sea and in deep and cold water. They seem to be especially abundant at what is called the mud line, that is, at the position where all minute organic and inorganic particles settle on the bottom and form mud, the humus of the ocean, in the place of sand or gravel. In the surface waters, again, they are extremely abundant and active where cold and warm currents meet. Here, owing to the rise of temperature, the bacteria which had been dormant or lethargic in the cold water become active and break down into nitrites and nitrates the albuminoid ammonia which had been protected by the low temperature from decomposition in polar currents or cold upwelling waters from the deep sea. Thus, abundant food for plants is formed. It has frequently been remarked that the pelagic algae are especially numerous in such areas, for instance, throughout the whole Southern Ocean and to the southwest of Iceland in the North Atlantic. While bacteria are usually killed by a temperature of 140 degrees Fahrenheit, they become merely quiescent by repeated freezings and survive very low temperatures. If the temperature sinks below a certain point, organic substances cannot putrefy. When the frozen Siberian mammoths were discovered, their flesh was so little changed that it was eaten by the hunter's dogs. If bacteria did not exist in the cold waters of the deep sea, it would be difficult to understand how the soft parts of whales and fishes have undergone decomposition. Phosphorescent bacteria are abundant in the ocean. Indeed, they seem to be limited to ocean water, for they have never been observed in fresh water.
These bacteria are present on dead fishes and other marine organisms at all temperatures, but especially at relatively high temperatures. End of section 14 and end of chapter 8. Read by Luke Hamilton, Hobart, July 2022.